Thanks, Benjamin. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you. Glad you were able to make it through the snow. Wasn't too bad, I hope. If you have a Bible today, please turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 38. If you don't have a Bible, and you want to know why all these people are carrying Bibles, we read the Bible when we come. So we have extra Bibles. Just raise your hand, and we'll be glad to loan you a Bible or give you a Bible. I know for so many people, it was crazy for me. I didn't grow up in a church where they read from the Bible. Don't ask me why. So if this is new for you, don't feel like you're some stranger that doesn't get it. You can learn to read the Bible, and, and you will be fascinated at the, the power the Bible has to change our lives. And so we welcome all of you that are visiting, even if you're from a different church background, we want you to study with us and learn together from the Bible. I want to mention a couple things real quick. First of all, our women's retreat coming up in March. Today is the last day, I believe, to register. So it's called Passion for God, Compassion for People. And so I want to encourage you to go to the visitor's desk or go online and register for that if you haven't already. Please be praying for Bob and Austin as Benjamin prayed for them. They're over in Africa. They'll be in the Congo where there's been some civil unrest and so forth. So just be praying for their safety and their fruitfulness in the Lord. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 38, a really interesting passage because Genesis 37 through 50 is really all about the life of Joseph. Even though chapter 37 begins with, these are the records of Jacob. Every single chapter is about Joseph except this one. It's almost like, what is this doing here? Because we're left kind of like watching a movie. You don't even notice the transition, but suddenly, in a movie, suddenly the scene changes. You're somewhere else. You've got different characters. That's what happens here. We saw last week that Joseph was sold into slavery, right? And then we're wondering, what's going to happen to him down in Egypt? And seamlessly, Moses just moves us to a completely different scene, and yet there's a reason why he puts this chapter here. And so, in Genesis chapter 38, we're really going to look at, wow, a mess. Judah makes a mess. Remember, God called Abraham. He said, I'm going to make a people out of you. Because the story of the Bible, the story of ruin and redemption and restoration, all started with the fall of Adam and Eve into sin and, and the destruction that that brought. We're all sinners. We're all condemned. We don't deserve to be with God. We deserve to be punished forever. But God had promised that he would offer a salvation to the seed of a woman, and so he chose Abraham. And so as you're reading through the book of Genesis, you, you read of Abraham and, and how God's raising up this godly seed, and then Isaac and God's preserving his promises, and then Jacob and God's keeping things rolling. Then you come to Jacob's 12 sons, and Joseph is going to be the, the one we'll focus on. But here we're going to focus on Judah. And the Bible's very graphic. This is a graphic chapter. It also doesn't hold back from human failure. And so as we look at this chapter today, I, I do want to encourage if you have children, it's pretty graphic, but let's pray that the Lord will use it to change our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. Thank you for all those who have been joining us to study the Bible together and to explore a relationship with Christ. Thank you so much for all of our believers, the family of God here, and the way that you are strengthening our fellowship and and we're able to expand our ministries and see so many 
people growing and serving and using their gifts, Lord. Thank you for, for giving us the Bible so that we can pattern our church after the word of God. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you're the Lord of this church and you're building this church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting that at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob with 12 sons, he says in chapter 49 or 47, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. Like he looked back on his life, he said, man, I've had a hard, sad life. Very, very different from what the Bible said in Genesis about Abraham. At the end of Abraham's life, he said, the Bible says, Abraham died an old man satisfied with life. So at the end of your life, will it be a satisfied with life or wow, my life has been evil and hard and difficult. Some of those reasons were because of Joseph's decisions. Some of them were because of the decisions that his children made. In fact, Proverbs 10.1 says, a wise child brings joy to their parents. A foolish child brings grief to their parents. And all of us who have children get it, like, like we're thinking not just about ourselves, but about our kids. And so this, this story has five scenes, and it begins in verses 1 through 5 with what I'll call Canaanite corruption. Canaanite corruption. Look at verse 1. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers, and he visited a certain Adulamite, which would have been a city in the land of Canaan, but, but understand the bigger picture. She was a Canaanite. Canaanites were already in the land, and the, and the Old Testament says these people were evil to the core, wicked, godless, totally in opposition to God, corrupt, doing all kinds of terrible things, sacrificing their babies to their gods, all kinds of sexual corruptions. So when God sent his people into the land, he said, don't mingle with them. Don't get intertwined with them. In fact, Judah chooses to visit this friend of his named Hira, a pagan. Now look at verse 2. It seems so innocuous. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He's like, hey, who's that girl? Hmm. I'd like to get to know her. So he took her and he went into her. And we're going to assume he married her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Like, okay, great, he had a son. Not Er, -er but just Er, right? <laughs> then she conceived again and bore a son named Onan. Like, wow, cool, two kids. And then third, she, she still bore another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chezib that she bore him. Now, interestingly, the, the, the name Chezib means city of lies. And I think there's sort of an implication there, like this is not going to end well. So one of the benefits of reading right through the Bible instead of just picking out verses is if you had been reading through the book of Genesis, you would have noted this. You would have noticed that Abraham, when he wanted a son for his wife, or a wife for his son Isaac, he said to his servant, do not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. That's Genesis 24.2. Go back to my country and my relatives to get a son. Don't marry a Canaanite. Along comes Isaac. 
Isaac calls his son Jacob and says to him in Genesis 28, do not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Don't do it. Rise, go to Bethel, your mother's house, take a wife from the daughters of Laban. But yet as you read on, you read about Esau. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite. And so Abraham says, don't take a godless Canaanite wife. Isaac says, don't take a godless Canaanite wife. Esau says, fine, I'm doing it anyway. And it says in Genesis 26, because he took this godless Canaanite wife, it brought great grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So the question for me is, he knew this, right? It wasn't like nobody talked about this. Judah knew, don't marry a Canaanite. But in total disregard, not only for his father, but also for God. And I, don't, I don't really care. Say, okay, so that's, that's the Canaanite corruption. And I wonder if, 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 if today, as we continue to think that through, how good of a job are we doing as parents as we try our best to explain to our kids why we don't want them to marry unbelievers? I think we need to be careful not to just be legalistic and harsh and just say, because I said so, because I'm big and you're little and there's nothing you can do about it. But that somehow, and, and ultimately our kids make their choices, that we engage with them, that we, that we try to help them to understand that in 2 Corinthians 6 when it says, do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever, come out from among them and be separate. What fellowship has light with darkness? That, that we try to help them understand that this is for their good that one day, if they have children and they want to raise their kids for Christ, and the unbelieving parent says, we're not pushing religion on them, let them choose. And I'm going, any parent who would dare say, let them choose, I would say, I do not think they're a Christian. Because that would be like putting 10 bottles of poison on a table and saying, one of them will give you eternal life. The other nine will kill you forever. You choose. So as parents, we, we pray, we ask God, Lord, please, may my child not marry an unbeliever, assuming they are a believer. But teach them and engage with them what fellowship has light with darkness. So be in prayer for our church. Some of you are married to an unbeliever, sometimes by your own disobedience. Sometimes there's nothing you could do. You got saved, they're not. Paul, Paul envisions that in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, if you have an unbelieving spouse, don't leave them, but if they don't want to be with you anymore, let them go. You're not under bondage. 1 Peter 3 says, if you have an unbelieving husband, wives, by your, by your godly behavior, you can win them without a word as, as you show them Christ. So I know there are several people here who have unbelieving spouses, and, and I want you to know, I pray for those of you that I know about, I pray specifically for you and for your spouses that they might be one to Christ. But we start off with this Canaanite corruption. Now, we're going we're to flow into the next scene where we're going to see God's very dramatic intervention. This doesn't happen often, but this is serious beeswax. I don't know what you think about God, but there are too many people out there that think that God is just love. He's just a, a grandfather going, children, more candy. People say, my God is a God of love. My God would, would never punish people. I'm going, 
then you have a little fictitious fairy god. That's not the god of the Bible. Now, this is, this is strong. Let's look. It says, Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So, so here we go. We're going to marry into these godless pagans. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's a lot of people that are evil in the sight of the Lord, but look what it says. So the Lord took his life. God killed him. And when we hear of something like that, we're like, what? I want you to turn that around. It shouldn't surprise us when God kills someone for their extreme wickedness. What should surprise us is how rarely he does that. That his compassion and mercy towards people in flagrant, godless rebellion against him. The Lord is very patient. And the reason he doesn't destroy everyone for their sin, the Bible says, because he's not willing that any should perish. And so as I engage with this text, I'm going, why was God so harsh with this guy? Probably two reasons. One, he was extraordinarily evil. And secondly, it might have had something to do with God trying to purify his family. Now, a question that, that I had in my mind as I studied this is, I wonder if, if, if Jacob and Judah knew that that's why this boy died. Did Judah go, oh, God killed my grandson. Or, or, or not grandson, my son. Now, here we go again. But Ur, or, or verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, his second son, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this seems extremely weird, right? This is, we would consider gross and immoral and sexual. Oh, it's terrible. But in that culture, it was very important to preserve the inheritance of the family and the land. And if a, if a woman had no sons, this was considered a very, very difficult situation to be in. And so what they did, maybe we don't think that's what we would do, is a brother would go in and, and seek to, to have his wife or his, his deceased brother's wife conceive and then continue the line and the inheritance would go to that son, right? So, God permitted this. It was called a leveret marriage. Later on in the Mosaic law, it was something that they did that's different from what we do. But I want you to notice how wicked Onan was. This guy's so wicked that he's like, wait a minute. If I do that and she has a son, I'm, I'm fixing to get an inheritance from my dad and from my granddad, and I don't want to share that inheritance with somebody else. But hey, I don't mind having some sexual gratification. I just don't want her to get pregnant. Look what it says. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, verse 9, so it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground. This is called coitus interruptus, for those of you that remember your Latin. And the Hebrew text implies that this happened more than once. So he was just having some sexual pleasure on the side. After all, what's the big deal? Verse 10, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. So I think we need to step back and understand immorality 
is so common in our culture that, that we treat it like it's, you know, that's just the way it is. Colossians 3.5 says, Christians, we have died to immorality, have nothing to do with it. Do you not know that because of this, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience? Just because people look around and go, everybody's sleeping around, everybody's cheating on his wife. Who's cheating who, you know, the country music? That might be what the world's saying, but Hebrews 13.4 says, marriage is honorable, the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So we need to think that through as, as we look at God's strong intervention. One commentary said this, not since the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah had God taken the life of one who displeased him. But there were times that God even annihilated groups like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's just worth going, hey, God killed Cain and Abel. It's not like he, 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 he whacks everybody that sins, but, but no, like don't just think, ah, oh, got away with that one, right? We need to develop a healthy respect for God and a genuine repentance when we're sinning. Just because God hasn't stepped in yet, don't assume that's because he doesn't care about your sin. In the book of Revelation, Jesus said of one of the churches, I gave her the space to repent of her immorality, but because she wouldn't repent, I cast her on a bed of sickness. So if you're a Christian and you're persisting in sexual sin, don't confuse God's patience for his absence. And if you're an unbeliever, there's a wideness of mercy with Jesus. But you have to come and, and repent and ask his forgiveness. And he will. He will heal you and change you and transform you and grow you in grace. So let's look at scene three. It doesn't get much prettier. So, so it starts with Canaanite corruption. We see God's intervention. Now we see Judah's fornication and Tamar's deception. You're like, this chapter is crazy. Look at verse 12. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friends, Hira the Adulamite. So, Judah has a third son. We'll pass over that for time's sake. But his third son, he should have given her to Tamar, but he doesn't. And so, he leaves Tamar to be barren. She can't have children. And now when his wife dies, he decides, let me go up to the sheep shearing. Now, let me say something about sheep shearing. When they did sheep shearing... It was a time that was known in that culture of a time of drinking, getting wild, just partying, right? So it's interesting. His wife's dead. He's come through the time of mourning. And then he says to his unbelieving friend, yo, man, let's go up to the sheep shearing, right? Verse 13. And it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, ironically, what she's about to do some commentators suggest that this was an act of faith. Like what she did was a daring act of faith. And, and my first reaction is what this woman does, I would not consider a daring act of faith, but I want to hold this intention as you read this. Is this driven by her faith, much like when Rahab hid the spies? She is praised in the New Testament for her faith. She's not praised for her lying, so ask yourself as you read this, is, is, is Tamar acting in faith to preserve a seed or is this just a flagrant 
sin just like her father-in-law. So, verse 14. So she removed her widow's garments and she covered herself with a veil and she wrapped herself and she sat in the gateway of Anayim, which ironically means the opening of the eyes. So she's in a town called the opening of the eyes, but then she clothes herself in a way that Judah can't recognize her. And she did this because she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Judah promised her, you can have my youngest son, but he didn't follow through. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Hey, men, when you're away on a business trip, and I mean, who's going to know, right? Anybody that says the Bible's not relevant needs to give it another read. The Bible says the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. And here he is, you know, hey, why not just a one-night stand? Come on, haven't had a woman for a while. My wife's passed. Wow, scary for all of us. I don't, I'm not... I'm not saying you dirty sinners. I'm saying we all need to be alarmed and alerted and watching and praying that we don't enter into temptation and fall. So he goes in thinking he's with a prostitute, not knowing that he's with his daughter-in-law. And in her cunningness, she says, wait a minute, let's talk about pay here. So he goes, let me give you my credit card. She said, what will you give me? He said, I'll give you a kid from the flock. She said, well, that's fine, but uh, you need to put up some collateral. Now, you talk about what we would consider dumb. What pledge shall I give to you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So, so he gave them to her. And he went into her, and she conceived by him. Particularly when it comes to sexual sin, reason can go out the window. I mean, literally, this would have been like saying, here's my credit card and my driver's license. You just hold on to that till I come back and pay you, right? But yet the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And also we have to see God's sovereign hand in here. Remember the book of Numbers says, your sin will find you out. And so I'm reminded like, wow, I need to be thinking through and praying for God to be merciful and to protect me. Now we're going to move down to the next scene, Judah's humiliation. And perhaps his transformation. Now, was Tamar a daring act of faith? I don't know. I, I'm not so sure that New Testament doesn't say that. But why she did this, we could at least hold with tension of going, it wasn't certainly to get gratification, but somehow she wanted to preserve a seed. Was it because of her faith? Look with me in verse 20. Now, when Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Adiumite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. In other words, Judah calls his friend Hira. He said, hey, man, go take this, take this goat up there and pay that prostitute and get my credit card back. You know, this could get nasty, right? So he asked the men of the place, saying, hey, where's that temple prostitute who was beside the road at the opening of the eyes? They said, there's no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and he said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there's been no temple prostitute here. I want you to, to 
when we think about our behavior, it's very important not to just think about what we did, but what's going on in our heart. Because the Holy Spirit reveals Judah's heart here. Judah said, ah, never mind, just let her keep my stuff, lest we become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this kid, but you, you, you didn't find her. You know what strikes me about that? He's more worried about what people think about him, his reputation. Isn't that scary about the human heart? He's not thinking, I've sinned against God. I've slept with a prostitute. He's just worried about, oh man, I don't want to look stupid. And isn't that sad that we are that corrupt, left to our own devices, walking in the flesh, that we're more worried about our reputation than our relationship with Jesus? But notice that God's going to bring his humiliation. Now, perhaps if he had repented, this may have never happened, but let's keep reading. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, hey, your brother-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. She's with child by harlotry. In other words, now think about this. Tamar was technically considered married because Judah had told her, when my youngest son grows up, you can marry her. So this wasn't just, in his mind, fornication. This was adultery, right? Now, have you ever noticed that those of us who can be very exacting with other people's sin are very generous to allow and afford ourselves a lot of grace? Here's a guy who slept with a prostitute. Not knowing it, it was his daughter-in-law. Look what he does when he finds out that she's pregnant. Verse 24, then Judah said, bring her out here and let her be burned. The Bible says in James 2, judgment will be merciless to those of us who show no mercy. No chance to explain herself, no examination. Let me remind you that the book of Proverbs says everybody's right in their own eyes when they tell their story until the other person explains their case. So parents, Christians, brothers and sisters, when people tell us, you know this and you know that, remember, there could very well be a, a part of the story we don't know about, okay? So suspend forming judgments too quickly. Let's pray that we are prudent and, and careful in trying to get all the facts. So at this point, when they go to bring her out and publicly burn her, verse 25 says, it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man who these things belong to. Please examine and see whose signet ring and cord and staff these are. She pulls out his driver's license and his credit card and says, this is the guy who got me pregnant. Right? This is what we call getting busted. And it's scary. I sat in a man's home one time and his wife had all the information that he had committed adultery. Facts. Documents. But when we confronted him, he said, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. No, me, no. Until he saw the, the facts, the documents. And then his head hung in shame. I've called this scene, Judah's humiliation, possibly his transformation. I'm going to put a question mark here. Because look at his response. Verse 26. Then Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And 
he did not have relations with her again. One commentary said this, here we are in the city of open eyes when suddenly Judah's eyes are opened and this is the beginning of his transformation. Later he'll return for his brothers, show concern for his elderly father, offer himself as a slave to Joseph. And in the mercies of God, don't forget at the end of his life, God gave a great blessing to Judah. Do you remember the blessing that Jacob pronounced on Judah? He said, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. A messianic prediction that of the 12 sons of Jacob, Judah, you will be the one through whom the line of Messiah will come. Definitely an act of grace and mercy on God's part. Possibly because Judah's beginning to experience repentance. And I want to say this at this point that the Bible sometimes really cuts to our hearts. Some of you are probably squirming right now, and you should be. But God's goal is not to simply cut to our heart to just beat us down, but to bring us to a place of repentance and transformation. All of us, the, the, the heart of the Christian faith is a continual process of finding out ways that we need to grow and change and being open to walk in the light. How often do we talk about the church being a hospital, a place of healing, a place of openness? We don't, we don't condone sin, but we don't stone people for their sin. And so if God is convicting you, like Judah, come into the light and just acknowledge your sin and be willing to be transformed. Jesus says, all who come to me, I won't cast them out. And all of us can learn from these things. Now, the story ends with, with scene five, which I call Perez's generation. A little boy's born here. And then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Look, look at how this chapter ends. We've got, oh my word, we've got, okay, we've got Canaanite corruption. We've got God's strong intervention. We've got Tamar's deception, Judah's transformation. Look how this, this chapter ends. Meanwhile, Joseph's down in Egypt. And it came about at the time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Now, interestingly, the book of Genesis has this twin thing, right? Remember Jacob and Esau? There's twins in her room. Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one of the children put out his hand. Now that's dangerous. For a child's hand to come out first, we'll ask Dr. Mike. That's dangerous, isn't it? Right? Our pediatrician here. But the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. Now, the reason they did that back then, it was a big deal to be born first. If you were the firstborn... You had enormous privilege. And so the midwife, midwife, says, midwife is just going, yeah, yeah, let's make sure this, this guy came out first, right? She's just assuming he's coming, you know, let's just... When suddenly, it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Now, I don't know what happened in there, right? <laughs> but she was so stunned that she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And so she named him Perez, which means breach. Like your, your brother was in front of you like a wall. And I don't know how you breached through that wall, right? But, but there's a reason why this is in here. This is extraordinary. This, this is not how it happens, right? When suddenly there's a bait and switch. Whoop. The younger actually is born first. Hmm. There's this younger son motif. It looks back to, remember, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the younger son, and yet he gets preference. Joseph's dreams. 
I'm the youngest, but you're all going to bow down to me. And now here we go again. This, this younger, he ends up being the receiver of the firstborn privileges. Well, what's that have to do with it? Afterward, his brother came out and they named him Zerah. So who is this Perez guy? You ready for this? If you turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, it says these are the generations of the Messiah, Jesus. And it begins to list his descendants. And it says Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez is the father of Hez- Hezron. And it goes on to David and then to Christ. And you go, wow, this little fella is one of Christ's great, 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 grandpops. How did that happen? Perez and David, both youngest sons, insignificant by human standards, but chosen by God to carry out his program. So you go, wow, this is an interesting graphic story. What's it there for? Well, I want to just talk about a couple ways that, that we go, this, this can affect you and me as a Christian. Number one, I want to remind you that God can use you even though you may be considered inferior or consider yourself inferior or you may have a, 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 a past that you're not proud of. Let me say that again. God can use you regardless of whether you are considered inferior or you feel yourself inferior or you have a past of shame. Because the irony is when you read Matthew chapter 1, there are all kinds of examples of that. At that time, current conventions excluded women from genealogies. But in Matthew chapter 1, you got four women in the genealogy. Secondly, those four women were all likely foreigners, depending on whether Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Third, all of those women had a scandalous past. Rahab, the harlot. Bathsheba, the adulteress, Ruth, the Moabite, and here Tamar, the deceiving prostitute. So regardless of, of what decisions you've made in your past, I want to encourage you. God is a God of second chances and mercy. God is a God who says, don't live in the rearview mirror. The Apostle Paul said, I forget what lies behind and I press on. But it's important that we come to a place of, of, of learning to deal with our past and realize that has affected me, my decisions, my upbringing, and talking it through with other Christians. And ultimately to remember that in spite of your sins and shortcomings, and, and you might feel like, wow, God can't use me. I can't preach like Pastor Tom. I'm not going to get up in Burger King and preach to people. You don't need to do that. Just be who you are and recognize that God is full of compassion and he wants to restore and use you and me. Amen? Aren't you glad for that? Secondly, let's be reminded that God's selection of us is entirely a work of His grace. The midwife was shocked. There's no biological explanation for how this Perez came out first. And I can tell you this, there is no explanation for why you're a Christian other than the sovereign grace of God. You didn't have anything to do with your first birth. And the Bible says, as many as received Christ, we were born not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but of God. And so think deeply about God's gracious choice of you. He selected you out of all of these people. And rather than blame him for not choosing everybody, be grateful. 
that he chose anybody, particularly you, particularly me. Perhaps the reason for this younger son motif is that, have you ever noticed that God seems to have a preference for the little guy? That God has a special heart for the poor, for the broken, for the castaways. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, look around and consider your calling. There aren't that many noble and wise. We don't have a bunch of wealthy, rich actors and politicians and powerful people in the world and professional athletes. There aren't that many of them, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world. It is by his doing that you are in Christ, so that all the glory may go to him. You'll frequently hear my story to explain sovereign grace and your salvation. If you saw a turtle on a fence post, and he was still alive and moving his little feet as his shell lays on that fence post, you might not know a lot about this, but you'd know one thing, he didn't get there by himself. And if you're a Christian, celebrate the grace of God that he opened your eyes and, and brought you to himself and you belong to him and so you're a part of his purpose. But there's a main point to this story and this is the one I don't want you to miss and that is this. God is going to accomplish his plans despite human failure. But God is going to accomplish his plans despite human failure. If you're a Christian, God's got you. You can relax. He that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. God is going to sanctify you. He's going to discipline you. He's going to transform you. He's not going to lose you. He keeps his own. Benjamin just read us a passage. God keeps his children. But we are responsible for our decisions. Individuals will be blessed or cursed or disciplined depending on your decisions. So there's this, there's this mysterious sense in which God's working it all for good. But that doesn't mean Judah got away with his sin. That doesn't mean that Tamar escaped unstained by her sin. God can accomplish his plan no matter who means evil, no matter who's jerking you around, no matter what happens and what people do to you and what mess you make, God's got you. And you, if you're a Christian, he'll keep you. He loves you. But it's sobering and important for us to remember that our choices matter. Judah chose to marry a Canaanite. And among many other heartaches, he lost two grandsons. Now, that doesn't mean if you lost two grandsons that you're wicked or you made bad choices. But in this case, it was the case. Onan chose sexual gratification without any responsibility or love for his, his, his family, and God took his life. And so I have to stop and think, what are my choices of late? And I want you to think about some of your choices. For example, family choices. Some of you may have chosen to check out on your marriage because it's too much work. Or you've lost your way as a Christian parent. You're not invested. Your priorities are, 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 are out of skew. You're not praying enough for your family. Financial choices. Career choices. Choices to give or not to give. Choices to stockpile versus choices to share. Choices to live for pleasure and money and gratification versus choices to live for Christ and service. Sexual choices. You're going to wait till you're married? 
You're going to stay in your lane if you are married? Or are you going to go, hey, you know, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to choose my orientation, my gender. And, and I want to be very sympathetic. If you have same-sex attraction, that doesn't mean you're sinning. But God's grace can help you not to act on that. There's mercy with Christ. And some of you probably have some things of which you've been, man, I'm going down a bad path. Let the Holy Spirit call you today and speak to you and say, hey, listen to me. Come to me. I'll cleanse you. I'll change you. I'll empower you. I'll, I'll make you into one of my trophies. You'll have a story to tell of the mercies and grace of Christ. What are your spiritual choices? Ultimately, the Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Remember Elijah? If the Lord Jesus, he be God, then serve him. You committed to being a part of a church? You committed to living your life for Christ? It's just a joy. As I pray and look around in the church, I can look out and see so many people who have come to Christ. And that's so exciting to look out and see Brother Mike just recently coming forward to profess his faith. And some of you have not yet made that choice, and I invite you this morning. Choose the Lord Jesus. Choose to be a believer. Choose to publicly identify with him and say, I do believe that Jesus died for me. I do want to be saved. I do want to become a Christ follower. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. And so let's close in a word of prayer. While our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, perhaps the Lord is inviting you this morning to choose to become a Christ follower. If the Lord has found you out today and you feel guilty for your sin, remember his mercies. Remember, Jesus said, all who come to me, I won't cast out. The best you know how, just tell Jesus, you're sorry for your sin. You're willing to change. You believe that he died for your salvation. You believe that he shed his blood for your forgiveness. And you're willing to turn from your past and trust him with your future. If you've made that decision, the Bible says you should confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. I want to encourage you, come and tell me or tell someone that you have chosen to follow Christ. If you want to talk to someone, we're here to pray with you and help you. There's so many people that can help you. Father, I pray for our church family. Lord, all of us are in the thick of either raising kids or grandkids or, or single and wanting to get married. Some are married and wanting to get single. Oh, Lord, just be merciful to us and Thank you as we read this story that we see your hand bringing out of this mess a descendant who would be part of the line of Jesus. Thank you that you're going to accomplish your will in spite of our failure. But Father, help us to make responsible choices and to make disciples here in this church. Please, Lord, I want to be the first in line to say, keep me from the evil one. Keep me from temptation. Keep our staff and elders and all of our spiritual leaders, Lord, because we're very weak. And for those that are struggling, I pray that you will protect them. Pour out your blessing on his church that we might see dozens of people coming to know Christ. And for all this, we give you the praise and the glory. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.